If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And we will once again be reading starting in verse 27. And once you are there in Luke chapter 6, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Hear the words of the Lord in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, Do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. So as we have been moving through Luke chapter 6, we come to these very famous words, these well-repeated words in our context in the Western world. And uh, again, I think I pointed out to you last week, the main way in which we take these words, the main way in which we understand them, hinges on how we understand the term love. If we misunderstand and we try to put our culture's definition of love on this passage, we might end up in weird places and weird understandings of all that Christ is exhorting his followers to do. And uh, at that time last week, we discussed all the ins and outs that separate the Christian character of love from the world's character of love, the kind of love that Christians embrace and practice as has been modeled for us in Christ, as opposed to the kind of love that the world embraces and calls us to live in. In this set of verses, and that's going to be from verse 29 uh, through the end of verse 35, Jesus is going to exposit what he just said. What he said earlier, the claim that he makes is in verse 27, love your enemies. And he's going to unpack and explain that claim and what it looks like in specifics in verses 29 through 35. You'll notice that thesis statement, love your enemies, again in verse 27, And you'll also see it at the very beginning of verse 35. And verse 35 really is the summary of all that he said in those previous verses. So if you'll turn with me or look down in your Bibles with me to verse 29, we're going to try to understand what Jesus is getting at when he tells us to love our enemies. What does that look like on the ground? He says these words, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. That is the first exhortation or the first 
uh, phrase. You might be familiar with this phrase. It's also found in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, in the Matthew's Gospel, it says, To him who would strike you on the right cheek, uh, give him the other as well. Uh, in these verses, this can be confusing. Is he exhorting us to uh, simply take physical abuse from whoever would offer it to us? That all Christians are supposed to tolerate abuse and embrace it and even uh, turn a blind eye to those who are enduring abuse? That is not what is spoken of here. That's not what uh, is in mind when Jesus says to one who strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. And Jesus is using a figure of speech. And I think at this point, it's important for us to understand the difference between a literal understanding of the words of Scripture as opposed to what's called a literalistic understanding of the words of Scripture. If we read the words of Jesus and we insist that exactly what he said is exactly what he meant, and we cannot understand those words in their context, in the context that he delivered them, we would arrive in some pretty weird locations. I might have used this illustration before, but suppose we read in scripture that on one day there was bad weather and it was raining cats and dogs. Now, if we were literalists with scripture, we would take that to mean it is raining very heavily outside. If we were literalistic with how we read that passage, what we would say is Jesus Christ in his infallible word is insisting that dogs and cats fell from the sky. And we know in the West, how that euphemism is used. We know that that means it's raining heavy, not that it's raining cats and dogs. And so as we turn here to verse 29 and we see that it says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, and we read that and we say this means enduring physical abuse, then we are literalistically approaching the phrase. The phrase here has in connotation enduring disrespect, enduring disrespect from someone. And this is something even in the West we can understand. If I was to say that someone strikes you on the cheek or slaps you, that's not really causing you much physical harm. Usually slaps are designed in a public setting to show some amount of disrespect for someone else. So what Jesus is exhorting his followers to do is when someone disrespects you, when someone speaks ill of you, when someone were to, in a sense, disrespect you by striking you on the cheek or by calling you out, just offer the other one. You are not to seek your own benefit or your own interest by defending your own name or your own reputation. To the one who would strike you on the cheek, your reputation doesn't matter, so turn the other one also. He is going to insist at this point and moving forward in these coming verses that Christians are marked by the fact that they do not insist on their own way. Christians do not insist on their own best interests Christians are willing to die to self so far as the gospel can move forward. So Christians are not interested in their own reputation. If someone was to disrespect a Christian, a Christian or a disciple, a follower of Jesus, would turn the other cheek. They wouldn't care if someone disrespected them. And then he's going to go on to say, and from the one who would take away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. This refers to someone who, either by legal action or by force, was to take something from you that was yours, your property. And not some arbitrary value of property, something that you literally need to wear to be warm and to be clothed. If someone was to take your, uh, your cloak, which is their outer garment, if someone does that by force, then what you ought to do as a Christian is not cry and scream and kick and shout and become upset at that, Remember, he told them in verses 20 through 23 of Luke chapter 6 that they're going to be persecuted. They should expect 
for this kind of treatment to occur. So when it does occur, when someone does take their cloak, a Christian won't freak out because they'll know that this was coming. What a Christian will do instead, what a disciple will do, is they won't, they won't insist on their own way. They won't fight for that. In fact, they'll be willing to give up even their tunic, which means not just their cloak, they're going to be willing to give up even the thing that clothes their nakedness. Again, if we were to read this literalistically, what we would say is if someone was to take a Christian's cloak from them, a disciple's cloak, that they should then walk around naked. And that's not what Jesus has in mind. He's not saying remove all your clothing if someone's going to take your stuff. What he is saying is you don't insist on your own way. If someone wants to take your stuff, if someone wants to uh, push their, uh, their force onto you and they want to take and possess what you have, possibly, for example, if they want to take your meeting space or they want to take away your goods or they want to take away your ability to do business and to trade as a Christian in the public sphere, you shouldn't insist on your own stuff. And if they want to come into your home and take all that you have, don't withhold it. If they want to take your cloak, if they want to take your tunic, don't withhold those things from them because your reward as a Christian is not here on earth. We do not have our treasure here on earth. We do not have our reputations here on earth, but our reward is our heaven and our reputation is aligned with Christ Jesus. So we don't rebuke people who would disrespect us. So if someone was to strike us on the cheek, we just take it. And we don't insist on our own stuff and we don't become so possessive of our own things that if someone takes it from us, we defame the name of Christ by insisting on it back. But instead, we allow those wrongs to be done to us because that is what Christ says his disciples will be marked by. So those are those first two verses. Look again in verse 30 and he says, give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Verse 30 has a similar phrase to what we just read in verse 29, right? That second half of verse 30 says, and to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. He's making the same kind of claim. If someone was to insist on taking your stuff, don't demand it back. As a Christian, you should be okay with losing physical treasure, physical reward, because it's just not that important. Why I'm mentioning that is because at the beginning of verse 30, we see a phrase, give to everyone who begs from you. Now, the, the term here, begs, it could be understood in our context. Again, if we're looking from a Western mind, we think of begging in terms of someone panhandling on the street. That every time someone goes and asks a Christian of money, what a Christian must do is empty their pocketbook onto that person. That might be what Luke has in mind here. That might be what Jesus is exhorting his disciples to do. But I think that in the context, the argument between verse 29, the end of it, and verse 30, the end of it, has in mind less so giving to someone who would ask of you, and more so to give to everyone who would insist from you to give you their stuff. He has in mind someone who is insisting either from a legal context or from a use of force context to take away stuff from you. And he's saying in that case, just give it to them. It does not matter because your stuff is not important to you, Christian. And again, the reason I think this is important to understand is because the earlier statement in verse 27 is love your enemies. He's not exhorting them right now to love the world. He's not exhorting them right now to love other Christians. He's exhorting them and explaining to them how they ought to love their enemies, which means that the people who they're being taught to love here are people who are going to be antagonistic towards them. 
So it would make sense in verse 29, someone striking them, that's an antagonistic action. Verse uh, 29, the second half, and someone who would take away your things, it's an antagonistic kind of action. Verse 30, at the end, it says, to one who takes away your goods, that's an antagonistic action. So it wouldn't make sense for us at the beginning of verse 30 to drop away the antagonism and pretend like this is now mentioning a neutral person who's just asking you for stuff. If someone was to ask or demand of you something, just give it to them. And we even understand this in our own context in the West. We use the term ask to refer to a polite request. Or we can say, if you've ever been in a classroom with a disrespectful student, and the teacher will ask them to step outside. There's a different way to ask when you're stepping into that context. Even more so, you can, you can refer to someone being asked to leave their job. Or they can be asked to step down from an important position. Or, as is common uh, even in the United States, we would understand a president being asked to resign from office. We know that there's a difference in that. It's not a polite request. It's a really forceful insistence towards that thing. And what he's saying is someone asks of you in that kind of way, just give it to them. As a Christian, we don't insist on our own goods. That doesn't mean Christians ought not to have their own things. This does not mean that Jesus is advocating for some kind of socialist Christian economy. What he's saying is, yes, personal ownership is fine, but it shouldn't define who you are. It shouldn't limit your charity. If someone was to demand something of you, just give it to them. If someone was to take away your things, don't demand them back. That doesn't mean what he's saying is, let injustice always be done to you and never let up a protest towards those things. Paul, I think, is a great example for us in Acts. Paul allows the Roman government and the Jewish people to beat him, to throw him in prison. And then when they seek to turn him away quietly, when, when they know that they've done him wrong, he says, you can't put me away quietly. I'm a Roman citizen and you've mistreated me. He insists that he does have rights even within their governmental system. And so I think Paul models for us very well what this really looks like. He doesn't, in that moment, fight back against the Jewish authorities. He allows himself to be beaten. He allows his things to be taken. He allows himself to be thrown in prison. But when the time comes for him to make his case, he does, within the bounds of the law, give himself reason and good reason for why he shouldn't have been treated that way. I think Paul is a great example of these kinds of things. So it's not sinful for a Christian to seek for no injustice to be done to them, but a Christian shouldn't expect for that to be the outcome. Because again, we're talking about the context of enemies. We're talking about people who would hate us. And let me remind you again the context of these verses. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying, essentially, blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. These are not neutral parties that Christians interact with. The world is not neutral towards Christ. And so we should not be surprised or shocked in any way if how the world treats us models injustice. That doesn't mean we should be okay with that, but we shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, Christians are given the command to love the people who would treat them in such a way. I think verse 31 puts this very nicely. It says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, this is not unique with Jesus. Jesus is not the first person to say this in recorded history. This has been said by rabbis at the time it's recorded in their writings. 
This has even been said by people like Plato and Socrates. Jesus, though, says it in the context of what we're reading right now. Plato, Socrates, the rabbis, when they refer to this kind of a command, what we would refer to as the golden rule, they always insist it in terms of neutrality. They assume that if you would not want someone to do something to you, don't do that to them. It's from a point of neutrality. He's saying, they're, what they're in a sense saying is, someone will treat you in the way that you treat them. It's just a common, wise piece of advice. What Jesus is saying, though, in its context, I think has a little bit more weight to it. He says, as you would wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And in context of all that we've just read in verse 29 and verse 30, we can very certainly say that the Christians are going to wish they were being treated differently. They're going to wish that people would treat them even break even fair. And he's saying, as you wish that people would treat you, do that to them. You can't go off how the world is going to treat you because it's not going to treat you well. As you wish that they would treat you, that's how you should treat them. Your barometer for how you treat the world is not on how it treats you. Your ability to love other people is not based on how much they love you. Your ability to do good to other people should not be cued by how they do good to you. If that's your cue, you're a philosopher, you're maybe a humanist, but you're certainly not a disciple. Disciples model the kind of love that Jesus modeled for them, which means we don't take our cues from the world, we take our cues from God. As we wish that others would treat us, we would treat them. Doesn't God do that? As God wished the world would serve him, he goes into the world and obeys the law perfectly. He loves the world in the way that he is actually has asked the world to love him. Even though the world falls short of that standard, as he wishes people would obey his commandments, he, in Christ Jesus, obeys those commandments. And then when he goes as our example and he saves us from our sins, he says, do that too. I've gone before you as the example, and as you would wish that others would treat you, as you would wish that my kingdom would come down under this earth, I want you to do that and model it for all kinds of people. Not because that is going to somehow bring the kingdom down. Remember, this is not the gospel. This is not going to take people from darkness into light. But what it is going to do is show people clearly that there's a difference between darkness and light. This is not a way to save people, but it is a way to show people that they're not saved. It is a way to testify that there is a kingdom that is better than what this world has to offer. The Pharisees are constantly recognizing that Jesus is teaching something that's different from the way that they live. The Pharisees know that Jesus is insisting on a kind of lifestyle that is too hard for them to bear. That's why they dislike him. And so as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised or we shouldn't be shocked that Jesus calls us to live in such a way that the world recognizes that we are different from the world. And this becomes even more clear because the passage isn't done in verse 31. I think it's a rather unfortunate break. If you have an ESV, it breaks a paragraph there. I think it's rather unfortunate because he's going to go on to explain even more so what, is, what he means. He's going to go on to explain the ethic of why he says do these things. He's going to say that there's a way that a Christian ought to live and there's a way that the world already does live. And if you can evaluate your lifestyle, you should line up with how a disciple ought to live, not how the world ought to live. And he's going to explain it in some pretty simple to understand questions. He says this, verse 32. If you love those who love you, 
What benefit is that to you? It's a pretty easy to understand question. I think when we were uh, in teaching pool for this, uh, Brian mentioned that in his uh, King James Version of the Bible, it says, what thank have ye if you do that? The point being, what good does it do if you love the world how it loves you? What good, or sorry, what good do you do if you love those who already love you? That's exactly what the world does. He goes even further. He doesn't just say that's what the world does. He says, that's what sinners do. For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, you don't preach about the kingdom in your actions if you love those who love you. Anybody can do that. You preach about the kingdom if you love those who hate you. You testify about my goodness when you love people who are difficult to love. You testify about my goodness when you love your enemies. If you love people who love you, every single human being who bears the image of God is capable of that. That's not a shock. That doesn't testify to the goodness of God's kingdom. He's going to go further. He's going to explain this again in case we missed it. Verse 33. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Same question. What good does it do if you do good to people who, would, who you know would do good to you? What, what good is that? And now he's even shorter with it. Even sinners do the same. Even someone dead in their sins, blind to spiritual truths, has enough of God's common grace in their heart to be able to do good to someone because they know they'll be given good back. That's not a shocking thing. That is just an imprint of God's common grace on this world. It shouldn't surprise us when we see humans treating other people well. God has bestowed his love on the world in such a way that even in fallen, sinful humanity, his grace still peeks through just a little bit. His moral law is imprinted on the hearts of people to such an extent that even if someone does good to them, they know that they ought to do good back to that person. They know. Not because there's some transcendent good that goes beyond Christianity, but because this whole world is God's world and his love and how we ought to treat people is imprinted on every single person's heart. And even with the distortion of sin, his common grace extends to all people in such an extent that they can understand this. They know that they ought to love those who love them. They know that they ought to do good to those who do good to them. Even a sinner understands this. This does not testify to you being part of the kingdom if you do this. That is a bare minimum for being an image bearer of God. To live in such a way that testifies to the kingdom demands that we would do good to people who would not do good to us. That we would seek the benefit of people who we know would not be seeking our benefit. That we seek to do good to people who we know would be seeking to harm us, to speak ill of us, and to, if they could, subvert us. Verse verse 33 says that very plainly. Verse 34, I think, is one of the best pictures of this same idea. It's just going to be illustrated once again. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Same question. What good does it do if you lend to those from whom you would expect to receive back? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I think that's so fascinating because uh, 
If you've ever uh, been around and paid taxes, you know that the government will lend money to you if they think they're going to get the same amount of money back. That doesn't make you any part of the kingdom of heaven. That might just make you part of the kingdom of one of the kingdoms in this world. Any person who thinks they're going to receive money back in the same amount that they gave it to you would lend you money. Sally Mae is willing to lend you guys money. That does not mean that Sally Mae loves in the way that Christ demands we ought to love. That's just good business if you lend to people who you expect to receive back from. Any bank will give you a mortgage to buy a house if they think you're going to be able to pay it back. That doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't testify to the fact that you're part of the kingdom. Again, that's just every single person who has brain cells to rub together would give money to someone if they thought they were going to get it back. That is not marking people as Christian. What good does it do if Christians behave as good citizens, but not different citizens from this world? What good does it do if Christians testify to be disciples of Jesus and yet live like good citizens of the world? Does that have any significant, lasting value that preaches about the kingdom? Absolutely not. Christians are marked by such a kind of love that we ought to not even be able to stop ourselves from loving the world in a way that exceeds these standards. A sinner can do good to another sinner if they think that that sinner is going to do the same back to them. A sinner can lend to another sinner if they think they're going to get their money back. A sinner would love somebody and do good to somebody if they thought that person would reciprocate the action. In all of the wisdom of the Greek philosophers, that's exactly what they say in verse 31. As you want to be treated, treat other people. But that's not what verse 31 is saying. And we understand the golden rule as, you know, if we want people to be good to us, we ought to be good to them first. Show them how it ought to be done. But that's not what verse 31 is saying. And in fact, verse 32 through verse 34 explains to us that that's not what it's saying. Because if we do good to people only on the expectation that they do good back to us, we have struck even with Greek philosophy. 2,000 years old, not Christian. That is not what the church ought to do. That is not what a disciple of Christ is marked by. A disciple of Christ is marked by a kind of love that blows this kind of love out of the water. It is not acting in your own best interest by putting a deposit of good works down and hoping that that somehow comes back around to you. No Christian does that or ought to do that and think, oh, that was very Christian of me. No disciple of Christ would do that and think, I really hope that that you know, comes back around my way. That would not be to love in the way that Christ loves. What Christ does with his love is he gives to people who he knows will not be able to reciprocate. And every Christian who has tasted the love of God in that same way should be able to love people in that kind of a way. If we claim we have the love of Christ within us and we know what it is to be loved by God, we ought to be able to speak the language of the love of God by loving other non-believers in that same kind of way. In a way that knows that they won't be able to love us back. In a way that is almost certain that they won't be able to give back what we've given to them. 
in a way that is sure that if we do good to them, we should expect nothing in return. That is the love we are called to. Because what good is it if we love in a way that says we are good citizens of darkness, but not citizens of the kingdom? The kingdom love is only shining bright when it's marked by loving in the way that God loves. Even sinners, as Jesus says, lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But verse 35 takes it straight back to verse 27 when he says these words. But, meaning instead of what I just told you in verse 32, 33, and 34, but love your enemies and do good and lend. And how is your loving and doing good and lending ought to be, how is that ought to be uh, marked? By expecting nothing in return. By expecting zero good and love and charity back. And if that is the case, your reward will be great. And why will your reward be great? Because you will be sons of the Most High. And how is the Most High, what is part of his family DNA? For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. You see the flow of logic that's present in verse 35? Don't do what I just told you to do. Don't do that because that's what I said sinners do. That's what I said sinners behave like. Don't do that. But instead of that, love your enemies. The same thing I told you at the start. I'm, he's telling them how to behave and he's telling them what he doesn't mean and now he's going back to what he actually means. He says, but love your enemies and do good. Not do good so that you think you get good back. Just do good and lend. Don't lend expecting that you will get back. Just lend. And if you do that, you should expect nothing in return. Because if you're part of the kingdom and you're giving kingdom love and kingdom good works to the kingdom of darkness, you should know that they can't give that back to you. And if you do that, if you do all that I've just said, your reward will be great in heaven. Now, pause for a second. Is Jesus saying that if we do all the things he just mentioned, that we have earned ourselves a place in heaven? It might seem that way. It might seem like what he said is if you do this, you earn a reward in heaven. But that's not what he's saying because you have to keep reading. And when he says, why is that reward great in heaven? Because you will be sons of the Most High. What he's saying is if your DNA is part of the family of God, if you are a son of the Most High, then your reward will be great. And you can be sure of your reward by looking and seeing if you bear witness to the fact that you're part of this family. And how you know you're bearing witness about being part of the family, the paternity test, if you will, is to love your enemies, to do good, and to lend expecting nothing in return. That doesn't make you part of the family. It shows that you were already part of the family. But if you don't hit these markers, don't be so sure that you're part of the family. Because Jesus is saying that the sons of the Most High are marked by this kind of love. He's saying, if you want to distinguish, he's saying, you know, the, my church will be in the world. My disciples are going to be in the world. If you want to know the difference between a disciple and a non-disciple, someone who follows me and who doesn't follow me, look for these marks. And he's saying this to his disciples, saying love in such a way that you don't expect anything back. Do good in such a way that you don't expect anything 
back. Lend in such a way that you don't expect anything back. Conversely, if you want to know who's part of the world, look for the people who love because they expect people to love them back. Look for a people who do good, expecting that other people can do back to them at some point in the future. Look to people who lend in such a way that they can get back their investment. That's the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is marked by all the aforementioned things, and the kingdom of darkness is marked by verse 32 to 34. Christians are called, though, not to the kingdom of darkness, but we are called to be sons and daughters of God. And if we are sons of the Most High, our reward is great, and we can be sure of that reward by loving in the same way that God has loved. And the root way in which God loves is by loving his enemies. He calls us to love our enemies, but he doesn't say that as someone who's never done it. He says, someone, he says that as a God who has done that not once, but for the entirety of creation history. God has loved those who have been his enemies since day one. Since Adam fell, humanity has been enemies of God. And so when Jesus comes incarnate into this world and says, love your enemies, he doesn't say that as some arbitrary neutral party who doesn't know what it's like to love his enemies. Jesus loves his enemies so much that he came down from his glorious throne in heaven to try to save some of those enemies. In other words, to love them in such a way that they would never be able to love him in that same kind of way back. All that Christians could possibly do in response to that kind of love is to show thankfulness, to possibly testify to the goodness of Jesus, but we couldn't come down from our heavenly thrones and save him. And we certainly wouldn't because we're human. And humans don't do that, but God does that. And then God does that and commands all of those who follow in his footsteps to be like that. As, Ro as uh, Paul says in Corinthians, that he is the firstborn of many. He's the one who goes in front of many other believers. He's the one who is the first example of how all the other sons and daughters of God ought to behave. If you're part of the family, this will be what you're like. Because the first son of God, Jesus, was like this. This is how he behaved. It's the character of God, as he says at the close of verse 35, these words. For he, and that is he being God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. That's just what it is to be God. It's to be kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Now, we might think, you know, we didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the time that Jesus delivers this sermon. The Jewish people didn't have that. What, what did they have? when he says these words, that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. What did they have? They had the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we as Westerners typically go, that is a God who is just, who's wrathful, who does some really cool things, but he certainly wouldn't describe him as kind. I probably wouldn't describe him as being kind to ungrateful people. I certainly wouldn't describe him as being kind to evil people. That's not what I would walk away with if I read the Old Testament. But that's what they have right now. That's the, that's the witness that they have about God. So when Jesus says, as one of his main points for how a disciple ought to live, that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, he's banking on the fact that they rightly know the Old Testament. And I would say that Jesus rightly does know the Old Testament. 
And I would say if we disagree with his assessment of the Old Testament, we're wrong, not him. He says that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And this is true on every single page of the Old Testament. Even in the sections where God's wrath is being poured out on sinful humanity, he was still kind to let them live even for a little while. You know, Adam and Eve fall from grace. And we look at that and we say God was really harsh with those curses. But what we don't understand is God actually allows them to live and to have children and to enjoy fellowship with one another and to be safe and protected from their creation. He's so kind, in fact, that he sends them out of his presence because it'll kill them. He says that he is kind to the ungrateful, and he certainly is. Even when he's judging Israel for their sinfulness, he is kind and gracious to Israel because he always comes back and welcomes them back into his arms, and he loves them and lavishes his good graces upon them. He rescues them while they were slaves in Egypt. They have nothing to offer God. And he says, I'm going to set my affections on you and I will make you a people unlike any that this earth has ever seen. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil because right after he saves them from slavery, they start complaining that it was better for them in Egypt than right now under God's rule. And imagine that your God and the people you've led out of slavery say, we like Pharaoh as a Lord better than we like you as Lord. We think Pharaoh took better care of us than you take care of us. And they say it to Moses and they say it to God. And he says, what a grumbling people. And rather than sending them back to what they just asked for, he blesses them with manna. And he sends quail down from heaven. And he guards a people who wanders through an arid desert wilderness and keeps them alive for 40 years. No agriculture, no consistent water supply, no consistent food source, enemies on all sides, no weaponry, and he keeps them alive for 40 years. Then he leads them into the promised land. Not only that, his spirit goes with them into the promised land and they conquer the entire promised land, as he said they would do. And the first thing that they do once they have all that safe territory, they abandon God and they worship Baal. Then he sends his son to preach to them and says, repent and turn back to me. And he sends judges to deliver them and he sends uh, kings to rule over them and to guard them. Then the kings turn their hearts toward, away from God. Then he sends Assyria and Babylon to correct them. And they still turn away. And he sends prophets to them to preach to them and to say, turn back to God. And the whole time Israel is being ungrateful and evil towards God, God is sending witness after witness after witness of his faithful love. He's sending angels. He's sending prophets. And then ultimately, he sends his son. Ultimately, he doesn't just leave it with prophets. Ultimately, he doesn't even leave it with high angelic messengers. Ultimately, he sends the second person of the Trinity down from his throne into humanity to preach to them that God is good, that God is loving, that God is firm on his promises and he will seal his promises to his people. And the second person of the Trinity becomes the very means by which God's graciousness can be displayed in humanity. He loved in such a way that he goes down from his throne and dies in the place of his enemies. And we would never turn and look at that story and say he is unkind to these evil people. He is beyond our wildest dreams, kind to evil people. 
He's, he's kind to ungrateful people. He's kind to evil people in such a way that we don't even have the right understanding and brain capacity to wrap our minds around it. He's so loving and he's so kind that even when we are born again into the kingdom, it will take us all of the rest of eternity to understand how kind he is, to understand how much he has lavished his love on us. If you think you understand it, and you think you can just move on past it and still go back to questioning God, I just want to probably insist for a moment that you probably don't understand it. You probably don't understand exactly how kind he is, exactly how merciful he is. Because while the story of Israel is going on, God is lavishing his kindness upon the nation of Israel. He's allowing them to be a blessing to all the other peoples. There's a whole people group that's just caught in darkness, caught in sinfulness, caught in idol worship. We meet them in the New Testament as the Romans. They worship a whole pantheon of gods. And God's even kind to them. Because when he sends his son down to die, he doesn't just die for the Jewish people. He dies so that all people would come to a knowledge of him. So even the people who he never made a covenant with, he sends his mercy upon. He promised to Abraham. He promised to Isaac. He promised to them. He definitely, by his own covenantal agreement, ought to save them, even though they've broken the covenant. He keeps the covenant, but he never made a covenant with the Gentiles. And yet his kindness is so great. His love is so overflowing that a group of people who has never even known God experiences the love of God. His spirit pouring out upon them, his son interacting with them and healing them, and then his son ultimately dying for them. Dying for the very soldiers who have put him on the cross. Not only for the Jewish people who have insisted that he be persecuted and executed, but also for the people who deliver the execution. Christ Jesus is so kind that he even testifies to Pilate while he is being sentenced to death that God is mighty, mightier than Pilate, and Pilate would be wise to remember that. He is kind that he doesn't call down his legions of angels upon the people who are killing him. And we look at that and we say that he is very harsh in his assistance on certain moral principles. He's very harsh in how he commands us to live our life. He's very outdated in the sense that he thinks that scripture is inerrant and infallible and applies. This God has no idea what's going on. But he is kind, marked by kindness, marked by mercy towards people who hate him and revile him and scorn him and are in complete rebellion towards him. And I know that he is kind because as we stand now, 2,000 years downstream of those events, we stand as a group of people who are probably all not part of the Jewish people marked by the fact that Jewish apostles and prophets went out from Jesus Christ as his disciples and preached this good news, not just to Jewish people, but to people in Asia Minor. They preached it to people in North Africa. They took it to the Viking peoples. They took it to the lands of North America, and they preached this good news all throughout the globe to where if you go to any continent in the whole world where people exist, you will find Christians. I'm not saying you'll find churches, not churches and cathedrals and places where you can go in, but you will find Christians. You will find people from all races, all tribes, all tongues, all ethnicities who can testify to God's goodness in their life. And for those who don't yet know Christ, for those people who have not yet heard the gospel, the Christian church ought to actively be trying to reach them with the gospel, 
to bring Bibles into their language, to send missionaries to those people, to be willing to be scorned and beaten and mocked because they're bringing a pearl of great price to a people who could never reciprocate that good. And now pause for a second and go to where he says in verse 27 that we are called to love our enemies. We are called to, to bear on our bodies the scorn and the shame of this gospel message, this good news that we carry. And for, for a moment, we can realize that this, this actually has to do with how we ought to love people who could never love us back in this way. We ought to deliver the gospel to people who could never understand it and might even revile us for it. We ought to deliver the gospel to people who would seek to put us in prison and in chains and maybe even kill us for it. And we ought to deliver something to them that they could literally never deliver back to us. And all of that is accompanied in love your enemies. It doesn't even have to do just with how you treat them. Certainly that's the case. But it goes beyond that because the ultimate way in which we show love is by testifying about the goodness of God to them. As Jesus does to his disciples, testifying about God's consistent goodness to save them. When I think of these, uh, these uh, teachings of Jesus, I just can't help but think about all the ways in which the other Gospels testify to this truth. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, the truth is proclaimed. Jesus says here that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He tells us to love our enemies. And then in John 3.16, John says that God so loved the world that he sends his only son into it. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God loves the world, the same world that hates God. The same world that is in rebellion towards God. God loves that world so much that he sends Jesus into the world. And then Paul takes this even further. Paul says in Romans 5 that, you know, maybe for a good person you might die. One might scarcely, though, die for a righteous person. But God loves us in this way, that while we were enemies of him, while we were haters of God, while we were all that's described in Romans chapter 3, he sends his son into the world to die for us. Christ dies at the right time for the ungodly person. And not only that, not only does he die for them, he also sets his affections on them and causes them to live in righteousness. It's elsewhere said in Scripture that the reason we know love is because Christ first loved us. We don't love other people as an investment into them loving us back. We love other people as just a model of how Christ loved us. In fact, I would like to turn to that Scripture. If you'll go with me to 1 John chapter 4. I want to start in verse 16 of 1 John 4. He says these words, So we have come to know and to believe that God, the love that God has for us. Why have we come to know and believe it? Because John's been preaching about it. He says this, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 17, By this his love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because we think other people are going to treat us better. We don't love because we think that other people will think more highly of us. We don't love because it'll give us a better life here on this earth. We love because he first loved us. And if we believe he first loved us, we will love in the same way. The Christian testimony is not, it is not about ourselves becoming better people. It is not about having the world think highly of us. It is just about loving the world in the way that we have already been loved. If I was to give you an illustration of this point, if you, if you think about a glass of water filled to the brim, and I, I make a claim to you, I say this glass of water is full to the brim. It's full with water. And then I tip it over and nothing comes out. And I tip it over more and nothing comes out. I shake it around a little bit, I tip it over more and nothing comes out. And then I tip it over all the way upside down and a few drops come out. Would you really believe me when I said it was full of water? And yet as Christians, we constantly say that we are full of love. We are full of God's love. We are full of Christ's love. But we don't pour out love in every single way in which we're shaken. And we ought to. Because to do so is to testify to the fact that we are actually full of love. In fact, if I was to go back to that illustration, if you think that this glass is not full of water, that's what you conclude. You can also assume that it was never filled with water to begin with. And so you can conclude about any person who doesn't love. That if they don't pour out love, not only were they not full of it, but they never had it in the first place. That's what Jesus is talking about his disciples. He's not saying you earn favor with God by loving the world. He's saying it's the DNA test of being part of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good. Lord, we cannot even understand how unfathomable are the riches of your love. We could never plumb the depths or reach the heights of where your love for us goes. Lord, would you give us grace to love even a fraction of the way that you love? Would you give us your spirit to love in even the slightest way that you have loved us? Help us to just be little pieces that paint a picture of the broader painting of your beauty and your love. Lord, would we not be unfaithful witnesses in the world, but would you please give us your grace so that we can testify to your truth? Lord, we ask and we pray these things not for our own interest, but so that your name might be glorified in all the earth. Not only here at Rua Church, but in every church across Indianapolis, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess across the United States and across the whole world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would we love in such a way that that is a winning kind of statement? Lord, give us grace as we continue in worship tonight. Amen.